Hi, everyone. Welcome or welcome back, depending on whether it's your first time or you've been with us for a while to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for spending a little bit of your precious day or evening with us, uh, wherever you are and whatever you may be doing while you listen to uh, this amazing episode. Uh, welcome, Welcoming back uh, one of my dear, dear friends, uh, Liz Kleinrock um, of At Teach and Transform. Uh, former school teacher, former school librarian, award-winning school teacher at that, um, and wanted to talk to her about uh, actually reminiscing about our, our time in D.C. two months ago for our uh, amazing, life-changing uh, visit to the White House and what she's been up to and and how we tackle, uh, how we make sense of a lot of the things that have been happening in the world and what we can do to continue to stay active and engaged. Uh, this is number seven in our series with Stand with Asian Americans, and we want to thank Justin, Brian, Wendy, Diana, and the rest of the SWAT team uh, for their support of the Asian Americans. And uh, if you have not listened to the first Liz episode yet, uh, it is one of our most more uh, popular episodes. It's uh, episode 98 that goes back to uh, February of 2021. And um, uh, still challenging, but yet at a different time. I uh, want to give a big shout out to Liz for uh, powering through the interview, uh, even though she wasn't feeling 100% um, at the end of her uh um, yeah, being sick. And so, uh, thanks so much for tuning in, uh, continue to stick around to the end. We'll share some, uh, exciting news. And uh, without further ado, here now is my conversation, my second conversation with Liz Kleinrock. Hi, Liz. Welcome back to the show. Uh, lots has changed since the last time uh, you were on the show, which was more than a year and a half ago. And was it really I that think, long? I think it, I think you were, uh, I remember the episode number was 98, um, and we did a hundred on the one show anniversary. So I think it was February of 2021. So technically it's been about 18 months um, since we last talked. Uh, the world seemingly has changed quite a bit since the last we talked and um, really excited to get your thoughts and perspectives on um, has it been better since the last we talked? Has it gotten worse? Um, what do we do to continue the energy of uh, caring about our community and other communities? Um, that impact all of us. And so, and, and there's a plenty of uh, personal and professional updates on your end that I, I am curious to uh, talk to you about. Um, but so we got to celebrate all the goodness. Uh, you and I, along with our friend Danny, uh, went to the White House together. Uh, we did. It was so awesome. And your Which outfit looks so good. good. <laughs> it was, everybody knows by now, it was hot, it was sweaty. Uh, DC, well, I thought DC in May was humid until I was there last week and it was extra humid. Oh um, yeah. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> that's it real was cute. really, really I mean, you know, look, I we, we flirted with the idea, man, you know, could we live out here? And I said, no. Uh we like living in the desert. At least in desert. Um I, I would love to hear about before we get started, Liz, uh the DC or sorry, the, the White House experience from your lens. Um we found out about a week before uh from our wonderful friend Howard and also another former guest of ours. Um how did you process the information? How did you plan for it? Like, you know, we were there together and, you know, we collectively geeked out at meeting, you know, uh, <laughs> people that we respected. And But I don't think we ever had a chance to like truly debrief, um, or at least with hindsight of, you know, having sat on it for a few weeks. Um, tell us about that experience. It was unbelievable. Like, I think looking back at it, if I go through my phone and look at all the pictures, I almost don't believe that it happened. Um, 
the way I described it for a lot of my friends and family is that I felt like political Cinderella. Like I got to go to this really amazing event in the White House Rose Garden and I got to wear this pretty dress and meet all these incredible people, so many of whom I have looked up to for such a long time. Um, I think maybe just dealing with all the layers of imposter syndrome, you know, that we that we go through throughout our lives, um, and trying to remind myself, you know, I was invited here, I I belong here. I th- I'm gonna just keep telling myself that I belong here, um, but it was it was absolutely incredible. Um, and I think amidst so much chaos that's happening in our country, it just felt like such a joyful, rejuvenating experience. Um, and it was even more wonderful to be there with you and Danny, like two of my favorite people. Um, I feel like for such a long time, like especially being adopted in Korean, I have I've spent so much so many years of my life searching for Korean American community, Asian American community. And it's really only in the past few years that I I feel like I found it. Um, and so it was it was unbelievable. I couldn't have imagined a, a better experience. I still have the invite. I think I really want to frame it and just like keep it on my wall to remind myself that it happens. <laughs> what about you? How are you processing? Uh it was cool. I mean, all the things and um I, I shared about it here on the podcast like the day it after it happened, and I got super emotional and um the extra cool thing for me, I got to go back two weeks ago on a public tour. Um, and no shade to the actual super cool event in May, but like we didn't get to see any of the house. And so even though it was like the public tour, um, we got to see parts of the house, which was super cool, like the state dining room and the blue room and the red room. And uh, most importantly, uh, the gift shop was open. So <laughs> I got to buy a whole bunch of White House stuff that now I'll tell people I bought in May, um, not two weeks or two months later. But you know, I, I I think the thing that still makes me think and just like you sort of makes me speechless is many people get to go to the White House in this country um, for adoptees, for refugees, for immigrants is a totally different context of sort of it's a validating point that holy crap, like we might actually belong here. Um, but more than that, it was the reason why we got invited and the reason why we got selected because I had a moment, you know, towards the end of our time there, um, I, I was talking with Mark Keem, who is a, a Virginia state delegate. And, um, you know, he's a little bit older than us and he's been in the politics game for a couple of decades. And he said, look, I've been here so many times, countless times for work as a political person. This is the first time I am here as a Korean American to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't know how much that means to you, but like, this is game changing. And, and, and for me, it's, you know, sure, it's good um, if you get invited to speak at a hearing or to meet, you know, folks who work in the administration. I think it's cool. But for the specific reason that uh, we were sought out and we were being welcomed because we were doing work within uh, the community and to elevate the community, I, I think that was the most special part for me, the reason why I was invited. And two, obviously, um, you know, you and I spent probably the whole afternoon like looking at the, the you know, the whole Rose Garden saying, Holy crap, that person's here. Holy crap, is that so-and-so? <laughs> Without ever realizing that, they might be looking at us and saying like, hey, we're here and we got the same invite and we were on the same list. And so in in a, in a flurry of emotions of all these things of us not feeling like we ever belonged here and imposter syndrome and, and how the hell did we get on this list? And, you know, 
it was nice so that it was nice just knowing uh, that we were there with each other and that we were not there to take photos with other people, you know, because um, they're more, you know, uh, publicly known or, or in that regard. And so that was super cool. And um, obviously just the after effects of the the impact of uh, what happened and sharing that story and uh, the confidence that I think it has built in all of us that we deserved it and that we were intentionally invited. Um, you know, the impact of that, I think, will be felt not just in my lifetime, but for my kids as well. Um, so that was super duper special. So a uh, big shout out to Howard again um, for uh, facilitating that and inviting us and, and and all the wonderful things that happened there that day. Yeah, Howard is amazing. He is like what I aspire to be. I love people within communities who see folks and decide like, how can I bring people along with me? Yeah. You know, trying to avoid all those nasty habits of like gatekeeping, power hoarding. And I think within the Korean American community, there's so much beauty and people wanting to bring others along. Just like you. You're like the greatest hype man ever, by the way. (laughs) I don't know. I'm sure you didn't talk about that in your, um, your post white house reflection, but Jerry was the person where like, if I would look across the garden and see somebody who I completely look up to and was like, Oh, I want to go say hi, but you know, I don't want to bother them. And Jerry would just be like, don't be ridiculous. And he'd like, come with me. And then he would just march across the garden, introduce that person, say, have you met my friend Liz? He'd give like a rundown of my CV and then say something nice and kind of like back away. So I would actually have the opportunity to talk with someone and just greatest hype man, greatest professional wingman I have ever encountered. Ah, thanks, Liz. I, you know, thanks for that. And I, I wish... Um, in a way, and, and, and I do it intentionally, right? And so I'm not going to shy away from the compliment and like act like it wasn't intentional. But the reason I do that is because I, I think we, I want to say culturally, but like you weren't raised in the Korean American culture, so I don't know what it is. It's just this, we self-other and we self-minimize and we get into these situations where we internalize the things that we've been taught, which is talking about yourself in any capacity is automatically boasting and therefore you should be ashamed. Well, if we're not going to advocate for ourselves, then who is right? And if, if we're not, and if we're going to have cool ass friends and we get into social situations, like why not make that statement? Right? Because, and there's a lot of psychology also based around third party validation of, you know, saying nice about somebody else rather than advocating for yourself and how that's perceived. And, and so, you know, I, I hope that we can all get into the regular habit of um, uplifting each other, you know, for as, as you know, uh, I guess casually we just say hyping up our friends. But, you know, this includes uh, nominating somebody for opportunities that may come your way, whether it's paid or whether it's academic or, so, or something um, and recognizing that elevating somebody else is never, ever taking away from yours. And in fact, um, doing that will actually give your give you a, an amazing halo effect of being the person that helps others. And so, you know, I, I say all that and I don't do it for my own glory, but I also fully understand objectively that in a world where karma happens and things come and go, like I don't do it with reciprocity in mind, but... I've also been the beneficiary of so many other wonderful people who have spoken my name in rooms and, you know, even things like with Howard, like, how did that happen? I, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that I think, you know, we got to experience that together. 
Um, and so I, I hope, uh, I don't know, Howard, if you're listening, Janice, if you're listening, because we made some other White House friends that day, uh, let us come back next year. Uh, yeah, we love that you. might be fun. Um, so in the last 18 months, uh, you've had a book come out. You've gone through some personal milestones. You've also now have decided to pursue um, this. And uh, under this includes writing books, speaking, doing workshops, uh, being your own independent Liz LLC, if you will. Um, how, how did you come to that decision? And, and how does that play into sort of the world that you saw and, and where you could make the greatest impact? Oof, it's been a journey. Um, I feel like growing up, you know, when you're a kid and someone asks you what you want to be when you grow up, you tend to go towards, you know, more traditional jobs, you know, like I want to be a fire, a firefighter. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a nurse. And so many of the jobs we imagine when we're, we're younger include things where you work for another person or you work for a company. Um, but I truly don't know very many children, like especially thinking about kids I've taught, where if I asked them that question, they'd be like, oh, I want to be self-employed. <laughs> Usually is not something that comes to <laughs> top of mind. Um, and so I think starting off as a classroom teacher, I've been in education for 13 years now. Um, the image is always, you know, I work in a school building. I am a teacher. I have a boss who is a principal or a superintendent. Um, but I have this really clear position in whatever hierarchy it is. And so the idea of being able to break away from that, to do something on my own is both terrifying and also extremely exciting and exhilarating. Um, the inconsistency of, you know, freelance work can be a little scary, but I'm just excited to be free. I'm excited to be on my own time. I'm excited to be able to put energy into projects that I care about, that I am passionate about, that I'm deeply connected with, to be able to do work with people like you and some of our other really incredible colleagues out there. I can't imagine anything better. And especially after going through the past few years in pandemic school, I'm good. I miss, like, I'm sure I will miss school. Um, I know it's not going anywhere. That's kind of the beautiful part about taking this sort of hiatus and trying out something new is that I know when I miss it, that I can always go back to it. Um, and I feel, I feel very privileged in that way. But I also have some opportunities right now, especially around writing and speaking and consulting where I don't want to turn around and realize that I've, you know, given up those opportunities just in fear of, you know, maintaining this seemingly stable like nine to five, which truly really doesn't feel that stable after the past few years in the pandemic. Um, but I'm excited to be able to pursue children's writing, to be able to travel, to be able to work with communities and try to spread anti-bias and anti-racism work that will hopefully impact far more students every single year. And considering the state of our country and current affairs, I can't really think of a better time to do that, um, considering all of the things that are happening in different states and districts trying to repress and limit this type of education. How much of the decision to, well, I don't want to answer, let me ask it a different way. Um, I think from my own experiences and having observed uh, your work, um, from far and near and through the conversations that we've had offline, 
authenticity, I think, is a word that comes to mind, and not in a good way, but our inability to be ourselves in certain spaces where we are still controlled or we have repercussions for speaking up. And so whether that is punishable by a demotion or a lack of access to certain things or um, in certain cases, even getting fired for speaking up or having a point of view, um, not just in our own day to day, Liz, but it, it's becoming to me a lot more important uh, that we encourage people to continue to be themselves and to speak their truths, uh, especially in the last couple of weeks or couple of months, even where it seems like we are headed as a country uh, of a more punitive nature for being ourselves or wanting to share our thoughts. And um, and in a weird, ironic way, I would say that people on both sides of the argument feel like they're being penalized for wanting to be them. Um, yeah. How do you, how have you found your own path in getting to that place of authenticity or being true to yourself? And how can we share some encouragement to those who feel like they have to uh, be somebody else at work or be somebody else with their family, even for personal safety as, as a basic merit, but even just, um, just to exist. And I, and I, um, cause I made that leap a few years ago after being frustrated within quote unquote, the system for many years. Um, and it's been a rocky, rocky ride. Um, but I'm curious to hear your sort of journey, um, to that place that you are going to now. There's so many layers to that. Cause when I think about how I was at the beginning of my teaching career, I had no boundaries, like zero boundaries. I was such a people pleaser. Um, and especially because early on in my teaching career, I got hired as at a startup school. I was a founding teacher, which was so exciting to be able to impact the culture of an institution, like from the ground up. That's amazing. And, you know, I was like 23, 24 years old too, um, which is like now wild to think about, like, how parents might have felt like, oh, me, my child's new teacher, she's like 23 years old and has no experience doing this at all. Um, I wanted to help. Um, and I think in my desire to help, I would often lose sight of what I needed to help myself. You know, like the airplane mask analogy, you have to like put your mask on before you can, you know, assist somebody else. I was not good at that. I had a colleague and a very, very dear friend who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but she was one of my co-teachers. And I remember I would go into her classroom, we like shared a wall, um, and I would tell her something that our administrator had asked me to do or something a parent had said. And I remember she would literally hold up her hand and go, stop, that is unacceptable. And then she would tell me exactly why she found whatever I was explaining to her to be completely unacceptable. She would say, you know, if I were you, this is how I would go about this conversation, you know, bullet point these things, but this is how I would suggest like conducting yourself. And I don't know what I would do without her, truly. Like, I don't know where I would be. I didn't even know that I was being taken advantage of in certain ways. Um, and I think what I have really learned over the years is that you are always going to be too much for some people and you are going to be not enough for other people. And that's okay because those people aren't your people. And trying to please everyone is ultimately just going to make everybody unhappy, including yourself. And I'm very lucky to be in a field where authenticity is something that is not only praised and valued, but it's sought after. And if you are not vulnerable, if you are inauthentic, then 
you know, people don't have trust in you. And in the world of anti-bias and anti-racism, I think trust and relationships are some of the most important things that you can have. Um, but it can be really, really challenging because this idea of code switching that in my you know, professional environment, I have to speak and uphold myself in a certain way, that there are so many different opinions about what professional, what you know, authentic are supposed to look like, especially through culture, through gender, through age. You know, there are, there are so many different opinions out there, but just figuring out who you are, what makes you feel like you can wake up every morning and look at yourself in the mirror and be okay with who you are and what you're doing. I'm at the place where I feel not just okay, but I feel good about doing that. And I think some of the hardest parts is realizing that it's often impossible to keep every single person in your life that you want to. It sounds really harsh, but there are people who are naturally going to fall away, you know, either consciously or subconsciously people you just might end up moving in different directions away from. And that can be really hard and painful when you look at it that way. But it's also, I think, really necessary that sometimes we outgrow people and sometimes we outgrow different spaces. And even to this day, I sometimes feel guilt about that when I really sit and reflect on it. And then I have to check myself that if I was really just trying to center the comfort of other people, you know, I wouldn't be being true to myself, if that makes sense. It, it does. You know, regardless of what community we grew up in or, or think we belong to, I think this expectation of expectations um, is really what drives so much of our behavior. And while I think it's easy or fun or sometimes downright lazy just to crap on all of that and saying, I just want to be myself, it's really not that easy, right? Because... There's families that are intertwined. There are friendships and decades-long relationships or even um, financial opportunities or obligations that are tied to that. And when you and I speak about us stepping away from the world of shoulds and saying, I want to chart my own path, it comes with a tremendous amount of privilege that we can do that. And not just financial privilege, but to be able to be okay with losing friends along the way or not being in touch with certain things or um, as you more than I exist in the public sphere, the understanding that you are going to get criticized very publicly and, and quite often. Um, how do you manage that? Um, I, and I want to ask this in the light of it's, I think that fear is the number one reason why people don't share more. Um, fear of feedback, right? And so when you talk to people, even on something as um, non-political as LinkedIn, where it's mostly professional things, right? People just freeze and they go, what is my boss, manager, classmate, friend, whatever going to think? And then they hit delete. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say like, oh, you're one post away from a life-changing thing, but like how many of opportunities are missed for connection and for engagement because people, and, I'll, you, and I'm using that LinkedIn example uh, where I play a lot as sort of like the base because the, the stakes are not as big, but then even on Instagram or TikTok, wherever you're just making a, or even on Facebook where most of the connections are your real human connections to make a statement about something you believe in and the fear 
of being called out or being challenged or being trolled or being told a whole lot of ugliness, I think is what really keeps people from staying active and engaged. Um, after I two totally years agree. of, yeah, after two plus years, especially of uh, COVID, of you know, anti Asian hate and violence, just us feeling physically unsafe, mixed in with just the general cluster F of shootings and court rulings and global catastrophes that give us a sense of anxiety in, in, in a time where many human beings actually need to feel connected to feel safe. There is this fear of, I don't know if I can speak my mind. And in and, and speaking with many other friends and creators and, and just people in the community, I think that's the biggest challenge that we have to face of how do we get people confident and safe at the same time to speak their mind in a post-COVID, post, it's not post, we're still in it, but, you know, sort of uh, reflecting on the last couple of years as being the peak of those two things that are very bad. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you, how have you dealt with that? Um, and then what encouragement do you give to other people who want to share as much as you and I do perhaps? Um, Cause it's not easy. Yeah. I don't even know if I've learned to cope. I think I've just learned some like <laughs> maybe coping mechanisms <laughs> um, or I've just learned to compartmentalize things better than I used to. Because it's really hard not to take things personally because it is personal. If you're talking about issues like related to your identity or your own experiences, of course it's personal. And someone telling you not to take it personally isn't actually helpful at all. And I think we often forget that there is no class in life about like how to communicate unless you, I don't know if you're going into communications or like, you know, HR or something like that. Um, but there's no rule book for interpersonal relationship or communication. And there certainly isn't one for social media, even though there probably should be. And it might be a very popular class, actually, if someone were to offer that. Um, but I think our lack of ability to communicate, to be able to listen to one another and also to receive feedback and to think about what accountability actually looks like and feels like and practice are really, really challenging. Because I feel like accountability is one of those things that everybody loves the idea of, but no one actually likes being held accountable um, because oftentimes it's connected to these feelings of deep embarrassment or shame. And what I try to talk about with students as well as with adult learners, even though it's a lot easier said than done, and I too struggle with it sometimes, um, my friend Shay Martin always says that accountability is a radical act of love. Like if somebody is calling you in, like really calling you in, not like subtweeting you and like calling you a name on the internet, um, but they're using, you know, their their time, their energy, their labor to correct you and hopefully to repair or hold on to the relationship that you two have. Because if I see somebody I know like talking mess online or I'm just like, this is not a good use of my time to have this conversation with you, it means that I don't care enough about you really to invest in our relationship, to really want to repair that and make sure we still have a relationship moving forward. So I try to keep that at the forefront, but it's also really hard because on the internet, like we can see such beautiful displays of community, like how you and I connected. Like there are so many other folks out there who I have learned from, who I now consider dear friends. And I have so many experiences that are like the exact opposite. Like I 
haven't been on Twitter in what feels like months just because every time I go on, it feels like a toxic dump where people are just subtweeting and like trying to one-up each other in this argument that there is no winner of in the end. Um, I think there have also been a lot of articles out there that I've seen, especially from college students and college professors about censorship, about feeling like you know, in certain spaces, I can't speak my mind. And then those articles are then ripped to shreds by people online as if to like further prove the point of why it's so hard for people to speak authentically and vulnerably with one another. Um, I think the United States has a lot of issues when it comes to binary thinking overall, that we want to be able to fit everything into this nice little soundbite. We want to decide if it's either this or it's that. Um, and there isn't a lot of area for, you know, all like the space in between. And that's truly like what we operate in most of the yeah. time. Um, I think I probably lost the train of thought there. So no, just, I, mean, I also have COVID right now. So COVID brain is super, super fun. Um, it's challenging. I just think that if we can try to model certain things, like something little that I've tried to do um, – is instead of using like either or thinking, really trying to remind myself to model yes and. So like if I'm writing something online um, that seems to show like two very different viewpoints, instead of using like yet or but, I'll just write and as like a continuation. Like these seemingly contradictory things can exist at the same time. And here I am trying to hold space for that in this one sentence. Um, it's little, but I feel like it's a practice that's helping kind of like rewire things of my brain to be able to hold that kind of space. I agree. Um, whether it is the last couple years where people have seemingly decided that the world, at least this country, is very binary, um, the world isn't, right? And I think um, the world is gray. Everything is gray. Uh, there are very, very few things I think that are actually binary. Like you, you're either alive or you're dead, right? Like, but there's not a lot of things that are that explicitly binary. Everything else is really so fluid and not only fluid, but ever changing, right? And I think we've been conditioned and have therefore internalized over decades that we have to stand on one side and agree with everything that everybody else says, or that, you know, if you don't agree with me on something that then we can't agree on anything. Um, and I sometimes feel that too, because I, as, as many others have experienced just a lot of rage and a lot of emotions over the last two years of how are there people who vote against humanity as the way that I see it. But then again, like, can I be friends with them just on a regular basis? Can we, talk and engage, how much work do we actually get done if we're just screaming in our own echo chambers, if we are truly to um, bridge the divide and working with people who don't agree with us, and not just from a political sense, but from all sorts of the world, um, how do we begin if, there, if, if the gap seems so distant, right? And I think that's where a lot of, again, and I don't think it's just for people who agree with me politically, I, I would imagine that people who are equally frustrated because the world isn't going the way that they see it or looking at people like me and perhaps you and saying, why don't these guys get it? Right. And we're just screaming at each other without really understanding. And 
that that I think is one of the uh, other than fear, the, the second most limiting thing is my own admitted inability to look at my own things objectively. And I could be wrong. I probably am wrong on certain things, but we hold on to our values. And, you know, that, that's been quite humbling for me. And it wasn't like a spark or a moment. It was just after thinking about it for so long, I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure there are people who look at my ideology and saying, wow, how narrow, how inflexible. And why do you anchor your things to that? Because just the, probably the way I think about some other people. Um, and so what, what are your thoughts on sort of navigating that space? Um, and, and let's use social media as sort of our playing field for this question, because that's where you have, um, I want to say excelled, but have grown in popularity. And and then you have, um, at least from my perspective, Liz, like navigated it well. Um, you have, uh, I guess we didn't even talk about Actually, number one, if you're confused on what we're talking about, go back to episode 98, listen to the original Liz episode, and then come back. Um, but you have a lot of intersectionalities in your identity that make this question even more interesting, right? You are a Korean adopted biracial Jewish woman in a heteronormative relationship. And so yes. I also uh, identify as bisexual too. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot going on. There's a lot. So meaning that anytime again, and the confluence of the, the stacking of those identities don't make sense in a lot of people. And therefore, when you present a thought or a defense or something, um, people get mad, right? Like um, people in your own community, the variety of communities that you represent get mad. And, and so how do we, um, from the perspective of sort of helping people stay engaged and stay active, not angry, but active in the fight for whatever you believe in, either side, doesn't matter. How do you navigate the emotions and the intra drama that goes in when I, I don't like the last thing I want to do is ever like look at your DMs. I, I can't imagine like how toxic <laughs> it is. Right? Like because you share sometimes some of the comments that you get and they're from your own people sometimes and it hurts the most because it, it's it's frustrating. Um, maybe it's teachers, maybe it's Jewish people, maybe it's Asian people, maybe it's who, you know, they just think, hey, that's not you don't represent us. Um, take, take me through that thought process and, and sort of some things that you can share to help us navigate, you know, a lot of the, uh, interesting drama that we all go through in life. Yeah. I think back in the day when I was building my platform and to note that I wasn't building my platform on purpose either. It was just a thing that I was doing. I never like woke up and decided like, I want to be an internet influencer. I still don't like that word. Um, it was really just a place where I could, kind of create a portfolio of the work that I was doing in education and try to connect with like-minded people. It was not about building a follower account. I've never paid for a follower in my life. Um, I don't promote my stuff that often. Like it, I don't know, truly it still makes me very uncomfortable to this day. Um, and so at first when, if it was someone adopted or someone Jewish or someone bisexual would send me a message and say like, oh, well, you know, something that you said or did really resonated with me and it made me feel really seen and really connected maybe for the first time. Like there's nothing cooler than getting a message like that to know that something that you have put out there resonates with somebody. Um, and then from there, it's very 
easy to put a lot of pressure on yourself to like keep up that, I don't know, level or caliber of content, but then to feel like I must be everything for everyone always at the same time, which is literally impossible. Um, and I think through a lot of therapy, through a lot of, you know, love, hate stuff that's happened on Instagram and on social media, realizing when a lot of people send those nasty grams, you know, it's not about you, it's about them. Um, and I think that is like the first thing that I've been able to realize that's always been really helpful is that like, wow, this person just sent me like an expletive laden message and they have they don't even follow me. All right. Clearly, this is about whatever this person is going through, has gone through. It is nothing about me. I'm just like the very unfortunate recipient of whatever emotional baggage or trauma they are carrying around. And it's not fair, but it's also easier to delete those because I know not to take it personally. I actually find it a lot harder when it's coming from people in my own community. And I think, you know, if there are folks out there who don't like it, then I, you know, I'm speaking as a Jew. Like I will never say that I'm speaking on behalf of all Jewish people or all Korean people or all adopted people. Never. Um, always try to preface things with this is from my own experience and mine alone. Um, but people like to often overlook that. Or maybe, you know, folks who send those kinds of messages have just been brought up with a very narrow idea of what someone Korean is or what someone Jewish or someone female is. And if you don't fit there within their little box and their exact parameters of this identity, then somehow you are invalid. Um, I reject that personally. Um, but I hope that since the internet can also be a really beautiful tool to expand our horizons and learn from people who are very different from us, then we can recognize that Asian-ness, Korean-ness, Jewish-ness, like any identity is so incredibly beautiful and broad. Like again, we live in this gray area and all our identities in these categories still exist in this area too. Um, so I hope that through exposure, just through people being willing to just sit and listen um, and maybe ask themselves, am I centering myself in this post? Like this person has, you know, 100,000 followers. Why am I taking it like this post was di written directly at me? Well, then clearly that was, that's not the case, right. um, which I think can be challenging, but maybe also just goes to show how infrequently some folks do see themselves represented in any sort of content or media. And I think that also goes back to this whole scarcity mindset within the white supremacist culture we live in, is that we think that there's so little room for people like us in the spotlight that if we are not getting something that represents us to a T, then therefore it must be invalid because we have to demand perfection at all times. But ultimately, I think that ends up hurting us more than anything else. It's so hard. Um, and I think, like you said, you know, when, when the nasty grams or things come from people that you care about um, and, and the community that you think you're advocating for, it hurts the most. Um, I don't think you and I are under any sort of illusion or assumption that the our communities are monoliths. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, we because we are loud and vocal, sometimes we have that unfortunate burden of being taken as the representative voice of all X, right? And like, I don't know shit about what it means to be any other Asian than me. Like, 
and there's 4 billion of us. And so even stateside, there's 23 million. Like I want to make space for these conversations and hence the podcast and hence the other platforms. But, you know, to say like, oh, you know, we think like that doesn't make any sense. And I think that's doing disservice to any community. And even, you know, I, I think even sometimes the, the conservative white community becomes mischaracterized because their data is also wildly aggregated and lumped in together without disaggregating data to see, hey, how diverse is that community, right? And so we often do to other groups that things that we uh, don't really appreciate doing done to us. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, what I have learned over the last two years too, it's just, you know, screaming in the internet isn't going to work. Um, like I don't do, I have Twitter, I don't do Twitter actively. I think it's exhausting. I don't know how people who are active on Twitter have any other jobs because um, the timeliness of response that's expected and just the incessant tweeting and the threads, like, I don't know how people do it. Um, so if you're if you're an active person on Twitter, kudos to you or your uh, virtual assistant or whoever does your Twitter. For um, real, I couldn't do it. <laughs> um, so uh, as we sort of wrap this uh, second conversation, and I, uh, I would be remiss not to celebrate sort of your next chapter professionally as uh, as uh, not yet, but might as well be uh, a children's book author with yeah. <laughs> many, many books um, in process that are going to hit bookshelves um, as early as next year. Um, what has that process meant for you and how have the last couple of years shifted the stories that you want to share, um, how you intend on going about not just writing great children's books in general, because you're a badass teacher, but also making sure that the identity piece, your multitude of intersectional identities that make you so wonderful, how that gets reflected um, in, in making kids feel a little bit less alone in the world. Yeah, I guess I have taken a look at my own bookshelves and thinking about where I saw myself represented growing up, which was like the yellow Power Ranger and she wasn't Korean. Like that's about it. And I realize now I think like the only Korean book I have is the Korean Cinderella, which is written by a white lady. Um, and there, for example, is such a lack of adoption related literature, especially for kids. Most of what is out there is either very problematic and that it's very Christian savory. Um, or there are things that are written by parents of adopted children um, which, you know, there are some out there that are better than others, but that still doesn't actually center adoptee voices. Um, so I'm really excited to be able to talk about and share my experiences as a transracial adoptee. And I hope that, you know, some of the things that I talk about and write about, you know, resonate with certain people and maybe some things will, and maybe some things won't, and that's okay. Um, but to think about stories that, I found interesting and that I still find interesting. And just by talking to students, I know they find interesting too, but there isn't anything out there. Um, I think it's just a really beautiful time to try to reimagine, you know, what we want on our books, what we want our media to look like. Um, and something that I talk a lot about in my workshops that I do with teachers is that I'm not in a place anymore where I'm willing to settle for representation alone. And I think for so long, so many of us were, and I think many of us still are, that just getting a seat at the table is good enough. But I am not willing to just be present. I want to be affirmed 
and who I am. I want to be affirmed in my identity and my communities. Um, if I'm looking at Jewish literature, I'm not settling for, oh, there's a book about the Holocaust. Like, no, my people, my community are not going to be defined by the literal worst thing that could be done to you by another group of people. We are so much more than that. And I see the same thing when it comes to Asian and Asian American literature and history too. Like we can move past, not move past, but just not just sit and focus on, you know, xenophobia and anti-Asian immigration acts um, around, you know, Chinese laborers and Japanese internment. Like those are important parts of Asian American history, but those are not the sole things that define us. Like, sorry for folks outside of our communities if those are the things that you see, but we are so much more. Like I'm not settling just for the oppression representation, like no more of that. And I hope that this next generation of children, I'm so excited to see like and hear how your kids like growing up, you know, are taking in the amount of beautiful, like affirming representation that there is out there. Um, I think we just have such endless possibilities. We can do better and we are doing better. And that truly gives me a lot of hope. Um, there isn't as much out there as I think many of us would like to see, but it's certainly a start and we have momentum and we're not going anywhere. The owning our stories part is so special. Um, and even more so owning our own narratives, right? And I think the what, what has led to this single defining attributes or even stereotypical things about our community is the fact that we haven't had very many opportunities to share, right? And so if you're only given so many slots uh, in a permission-driven industry like publishing, like TV, like movies, it's hard to have, you know, depth in or, or you know, a variety of roles, right? A variety of, of choices. Um, you know, I've often joked like, why can't we make shitty movies too? Like, why can't we have like Asian Mall Cop 4? Right. right. Like, Where's our Kevin James? We need Asian right. Kevin James. Right. I mean, he, he's a good actor, but like just the movies that get allowed to be created, the TV shows that get greenlit, the musical acts, you know, we almost have to be and not just Asians, but all, you know, uh, minoritized people in this country. We have to be great to get the same opportunities that other people get, you know, uh, a good gut feeling. So we're just going to take a, a bet on you. Right. And, and And I think that's sort of where the next generation, including you, including our friend Joanna, including all the other wonderful people who are starting at the kids level to let them know that there is uh, depth and diversity, even with our own identities, right? Um, even if we look at, unfortunately, some of the surveys that come out about the impressions of Asian Americans, we're still, in many people's minds, typecast as, uh, if they can name us at all, martial arts people or you know things that sit well within their own mind. Right. And so um, when we often get asked, you know, uh, or, or I guess when I talk to um, other authors or other kids or parents, like, why is it so weird that your kid has to read a book with an Asian kid? Right. Or, you know, we've been told like, oh, that's not America. Like the market won't accept a TV show with a, a black family, an Asian family, whatever. And it's like, why? Right. Like, what is not relatable about that when we look at my kids, like they're friends with everybody, right? Like, and then race is something that they learn. And and so, you know, I'm excited for that chapter. Um, she's coming on the show in the next month or so, but uh, Joanna actually came to my kid's preschool two weeks ago 
and like visited a couple of locations and like read to them. And like I facilitated that because one, when your friends are New York Times bestselling authors and they're in your city, you put them to work. Thanks, Joanna. Joanna's the best also. She is like the nicest person she ever. Is. But two, I want not just my own kids and the other Asian kids in that room to see themselves in her, but I want and almost more need the other non-Asian kids to see people like her visiting their schools, sitting at the front, reading stories that she wrote to do my part in combating the stereotypical things that they may only see Asian people for in their homes, on their TV screens, or even on children's TV shows, right? Like, and so, you know, I, I think when I think about sort of like, what do we do in our own avenues about the anger that we feel or some of the, the wrongs that we feel like we need to write? And I think, um, no, totally pun intended, but it is to write more. It is to speak more. It is to create more. Um, create content, whether it is a book, music, write a movie script, whatever, to share the stories that normalize our experiences. Um, you know, we haven't aired the interview yet, but we did a, um, an interview with Cal Penn, who full circle had the job in the Obama administration that Howard now has in the Biden administration. Uh, wild. But I, and I talked to him about Harold and Kumar specifically because that's what he's known for. But that wasn't a stereotypical role. Right. Like it was just two pothead friends. Sure. There were like storylines about, you know, going into med school that like played into some of the stereotypes, but they weren't asked to do accents. They weren't, you know, there wasn't a lot. And, and I, I think for him, that was so special because somebody had written a script that intentionally called out for Asian American actors that didn't have stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I want to get to a point where that's not a big deal. Like, and I still know because we have so few opportunities that when we are given a platform to speak at a conference or to write a book and we get a deal or to do something very publicly in the media space, we still unfortunately have to take that opportunity to amplify our community and culture. But why not have Asian authors write stories about other people that are just normal, regular ass books? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the goal. But until, but we can't get there, in my opinion, until we sufficiently satisfy and fill up the pipeline of opportunities that we have to amplify us because we're still not seen as relatable in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the work that you're doing. Um, I am so excited for you. You're uh, venturing on your own as your own author, um, speaker, you do consulting, you do uh, professional development workshops for school districts across the country. Um, as uh, somebody who's been doing this for a while, it won't be easy. Um, there will be many, many holy shit months, um, <laughs> especially during especially during the holidays when, like, surprise, like corporations don't hire speakers, um, which is actually a nice time to like you know recoup and re rest rest up. But um, I'm excited for the next chapter of, of yours, um, and I, I hope that you find even more um, energy and power in leveraging your platform for good. Um, Cause I still know, even though you probably don't think so, like in the back of your mind, when you're still getting a paycheck from a school or whatever, like you're not going all in on being how you truly feel. Cause you're still 
there's still the possibility of repercussions, right? And so, um, very much so, yeah. Yep. And I know there's a whole lot of other um, awesome stuff in your personal life uh, that we know is happening at the same time. So, uh, congratulations to all of that. Um, I guess a self plug for both of us, if you're listening and you are either in the DC area and or in the ERG space, uh, Liz and I are both speaking at the NAP conference, the National Association of Asian American Professionals. I'm speaking on Thursday. She's speaking on Saturday. Um, if you are in the area, we'd love to see y'all. Um, and uh, thanks Party for Party at Anju. <laughs> Party at, you know, I, I took my family there the other day, um, had like two drinks and it was the the most sober experience I've ever had at that establishment. Um, <laughs> Just two. Danny, Danny, Danny wasn't there, but I think uh, some of the other guys were deeply confused. Why is Jerry sober? <laughs> I said, my in-laws are upstairs. I can't do that. But I will be. You back. didn't take any kimchi bags. I did not. Um, so that sad. would have that would have surprised the shit out of my uh, my wife's family. <laughs> so we'll just have to make up for it when you're here. We again. will make up for it on August 11th. Um, mm-hmm. Liz, thank you so much for joining us, even though you're not feeling 100. Uh, I, I hope that you, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for your next chapter. I'm grateful for the work that you have done, continue to do. Um, we're uh, and I guess uh, why not? We're we're also putting our name in in the hat again for South by Southwest next year. If you're Heck hearing yeah. this episode before July 24th, that's the deadline to submit your own idea. Uh, we'd love to see more Asian speakers, more Asian panels, more topics around our identity and culture being presented um, at a big event like South by Southwest. Um, if you want pointers or if you want uh, guidance or uh, shoot some ideas off the wall, uh, please let me know. Uh, would love to share in that with you. By the time this goes out tomorrow, you'll have just under two weeks uh, to to submit everything. So um, thanks so much. Um, if you want to learn more about the work that Liz is doing, you can go to teachandtransform.org or go to at teachandtransform on the Instagrams. Um, and uh, we'll see you soon, Liz. Thanks, Jerry. You're the best. Big thanks to Liz. Uh, having Liz in my life as a friend, uh, as a colleague, as a Tongzheng, has been an amazing blessing. Uh, she keeps me uh, accountable. She keeps me engaged. And uh, I learned so much from her unique perspective uh, as a fellow Korean American, but uh, somebody whose life experience is very different than that of my own. Uh, we're going to be starting something really exciting uh, together. And uh, we'll share with you now also that we are going to be resubmitting our proposal uh, to South by Southwest 2023, along with all the Years Americans guests, Simran Jeet Singh, uh, who you will hear just next Tuesday again, uh, Dion Lim and Liz. And so uh, we'll be sharing about how you can support us in that effort uh, in a couple of weeks as the panel picker voting goes live. And so that's really exciting for us. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, before July 21st, join us at The Wing in Chicago at Fulton Market on Thursday, uh, July 21st, where we'll be spe- spending an evening celebrating Asian American entrepreneurs, restaurateurs, and storytellers. There's going to be a speaking event with author Kathy Kong, Nadi Shastri, hosted by uh, former Wing CEO Jen Cho, a great friend of ours. There'll be food from Vietnam Nam, from uh, and from Snacky Chan. I'm really excited to do that. And uh, all the proceeds from the event will be going to Chicago Asian Women Empowerment. And so really excited. Uh, jump on our Instagram page at Dears and Americans and learn more by going to the link in the bio. If you want to connect with me, you can do that at jerrywan.com or at jerryjwan on Instagram 
or find me on LinkedIn. Just look for Jerry Wan. Thank you so much to every single one of you who have listened to this show. We passed an amazing milestone last week, surpassing 100,000 downloads and listens. And so what a blessing um, for me to be able to share our stories and to um, have these stories resonate. And so in a quick two and a half years, we can surpass this uh, pretty cool milestone. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm your host, Jerry Wan, wishing you particularly uh, this week as the COVID cases rise all over the world and particularly in our communities, continued health, safety, and happiness. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next time.